Welcome back, Unscript friends and family. Matt Lynch here. We have another good episode lined up for you. But before we begin, two quick things. First, did you know that we have a donate page? Just click on the donate tab on onscript.study and you will find all the information you need. Subscribe at $2 or more per month or the equivalent in your currency and you'll be automatically entered to win a few gifts. Also, Matt and I are going to do an episode with just the two of us together, uh, Talking Shop, and that will be toward the end of this month. If you have any specific questions or topics related to biblical studies that you would like us to discuss, tweet them at OnScriptPodcast, Facebook message us, or email to OnScriptPodcast at gmail.com, and we'll try to get to them. Okay, on to the show. rituals are perplexing and challenging to modern interpreters of the Bible. And perhaps because they seem odd, for instance, sacrificial rituals, prohibitions on touching the carcasses of certain animals, there exists an almost overwhelming urge to decode the symbol system of biblical rituals to make them make sense, to find out what each ceremonial act signifies, to find the meaning behind the actions of priests and participants. So blood signifies life, animals substitutes for worshipers, hand on head transfers sin, slaughtering equals transferred punishment, etc. But this way of making sense of rituals may miss the point by a lot. With us today to discuss this and more is Drew Johnson, who not only looks at what rituals mean, but more importantly, how rituals shape us as knowers. Drew, welcome to OnScript. Wow, thank you. It's a pleasure and honor to be here. Drew is Associate Professor of Biblical and Theological Studies at the King's College in New York. He's the author of several books, including Biblical Knowing, A Scriptural Epistemology of Error, and for our conversation today, Knowledge by Ritual, A Biblical Prolegomenon to Sacramental Theology. Drew, before we get into your book, could you talk briefly about your background and how you made your way to becoming a guy who writes on biblical epistemology? I know your your journey was hardly straightforward. Um, yeah, it, it was not straightforward, and, and it was unanticipated even to me. Uh, so I was not someone who graduated college and thought that I was going to go in this direction. I was looking at research psychology. I uh, Maybe if I could talk about the epistemology section, because that kind of is at the foreground, and then ritual came in uh, after that. I was a, an adult convert at 20. I was a high school dropout. I was kind of a skinhead at the point, not, not a racist neo-Nazi. You know, my stepfather was African-American, my sister's African-American, so not that kind, but um, definitely off the streets and drinking. At least, at least an anarchist? Uh, no, it's a long story, but we didn't do anarchy either. It was a, you know what, it was a local fraternity. It was essentially a fraternity of brothers, most of whom did not have fathers, and that probably explains more of what we were doing than anything else. Uh, joined the military, uh, volunteered for combat assignments, often went on, went on 10 of them total over five years. Um, and then when I was doing uh, research psychology as an undergrad and, and looking at that as a direction, um, I think what came back to me is I was interested in why people think the way they do. Uh, and I think a lot of my life experiences just drove that question and compelled me to pursue it. 
I thought psychology was going to be the place where I would work that question out. Uh, the friend who kind of led me to Christ, as it were, uh, when I was 20, um, he pulled me aside as I had already applied to PhD programs in psychology and said, um, uh, I think you ought to go to seminary. And I, was, I said, seminary, what, what is a seminary? What do they do there? I, don't, I didn't even know. Uh, and so I went to a local seminary. Uh, it turned out to be a good one, but I went to a local one on a whim, Covenant Theological Seminary. And... Um, and we, uh, and that's when kind of all my questions changed. Um, I read in the first semester there, uh, because there was a woman there named Esther Meek, this epistemologist, uh, who was teaching a class on epistemology. And I, I couldn't get in the class because it was full. But a guy said, hey, let's read this book, Michael Polanyi, Personal Knowledge, together. Uh, and because I had a kind of a, a social science background. Uh, and so we started reading it. He quickly not dropped out, but he tailed off interest. And for me, it was a very compelling read. Uh, it was the first time I'd heard a philosopher of science uh, explain how science actually works in a way that I never heard when I was studying uh, scientific method, uh, statistical analysis. Um, and again, it kind of kept pushing me in that direction of, well, how do we know things? And science, as, as you, you know, because you've looked at the book now, uh, science is always kind of thrust forward as our best way of knowing something, which I think is there's a good reason for that. And I support that view. Uh, but uh, how do scientists even know things with such confidence? Um, and so that just kept pushing me down this question of epistemology. Uh, and by the end of seminary, I was also very interested in, in sacraments. Uh, and I initially was going to do doctoral work. I was looking at trying to do something in Vatican II sacramental theology, um, but ended up getting pushed by a, a mentor in, in seminary into the direction of, um, well, let's put it this way. He said, uh, I, I adjuncted a class at a seminary, and, and he said, uh, you know, you, you keep saying that your epistemology is biblical, but you haven't done a lot to show that it's biblical. So, um, so I took that as a challenge. Uh, back, uh, I kind of backed in accidentally into a fellow named Alan Torrance at St. Andrews. Uh, we had a long conversation. And he asked me to come study with him there. Um, and I think I actually began that project uh, by throwing everything up in the air and saying, well, maybe I am wrong about this. Maybe I have been importing my notions of epistemology into scripture. And I kind of just Started at the beginning uh, at Genesis and worked my way forward to, to see whether anything was there, whether, whether it cared about theories of knowledge. Um, and then if it does care about it, what does it have to say? Does it, does it merely describe or does it prescribe things about how we should know things? Um, and I, I think what I discovered, I was fairly hard on myself and, and put, it, put screws to it and had other people put the screws to it. Uh, I discovered that Many of my intuitions about what might be going on in Scripture were um, were close, uh, and and I also discovered lots of things that I had not even thought about before in Scripture. So it was a it was a genuine research project. It wasn't merely just to confirm that I had I had been right. So before we get to the specifics of your your work in biblical epistemology, for some of our our listeners, there's some terms here that they might not be familiar with. So could you just briefly define epistemology, um, and of course, uh, ritual is in your title, so how you're using that term as well. Yeah, uh, that's a good distinction. Uh, so people often get scared by the word epistemology, um, and rightfully so. It's a, it's a very, um, it's an abstract topic. It's how, it's how we, the study of how we know things. Um, I simplify that down to just, uh, maybe we could just say epistemology means who can know what and how. Uh, I think it's probably a better, if we're going to get into the biblical track on how to think about that. Um, 
And so there's lots of discussion. I mean, obviously, when you talk about knowledge, uh, people are going to introduce ideas like facts, and philosophers are going to start not talking about facts, but maybe propositions, and then propositions can be stated in sentences, which we can then sometimes call facts. And how do we know whether a fact is true or false? Um, and that's a discussion that has been raging uh, in contemporary philosophy about theories of knowledge, uh, especially in the analytic tradition. Uh, the Anglo-American Western tradition has, has focused mostly on that. How do we justify a belief in a proposition uh, that it's true? Um, that's where almost all the discussion has happened in Anglo-American West. Um, when you turn to scripture, it, it's... Uh, well, I guess I'll stay that for a second. We, we can come back to that because you didn't ask me that. So epistemology just means um, who can know what and how. That's what I would say is the best definition. Uh, ritual then, I would say, is um, my most simple definition in this book is uh, something scripted, something done, or something practiced, something done. Um, you know, I brush my teeth uh, every day, at least twice a day, whether I need it or not. Uh, and... Uh, and if you watched me do it day after day, you would notice that I do it in a very distinct pattern, right? And so at some point, some anthropologists are going to want to say there's a ritual, a, a hygiene ritual that includes toothbrushing. Um, but that's not quite what I'm talking about because that's something that kind of emerges from the daily practice. Like we all dry ourselves off in the shower the, probably the same way every time. And we wouldn't, you couldn't tell you what that way was, but if you handed us a towel, we could probably reenact it precisely you know, on the spot. Fully clothed, of course, um, and uh, but there are uh, the, the types of rituals we run into in scripture and throughout life, uh, including in the classroom. I mean, there's a whole you know you could say a lot here about everything we're saying here could be included in a full discussion of pedagogy. Um, these are things that we say: do this because I know it will dispose you to see something that you couldn't see otherwise. Right? Uh, do this thing for this reason. So, I'm scripting you. When I say do this, I'm giving you a few nodal points that these are things that must be done. Um, and then, uh, and then there's a purpose to it. There's a strategic uh, reason for it. So we can talk about, um, you know, what's the difference between a shower and a baptism. Uh, uh, a baptism is a strategically employed bath, uh, and it's strategically employed, meaning that it's not like every other bath you've ever taken. Uh, forget about what mode you use to baptize people, but it's it's not like every other cleansing you've ever had. And so in some way, it's a critique of those other cleansings, uh, not necessarily a negative one, but it's some kind of critique on those. Um, and it's for a reason, which means it's a strategic employment of that, of that bathing. And so, so in rituals, we're looking at how, and when you look at the rituals of Israel, it's all normal practices, killing animals for food, uh, cooking them, um, collecting things together, uh, like uh, collecting wheat and, and, and offering it to other people. I mean, there's a very normal daily practices that have been strategically employed for another purpose. And so the question then becomes, what's the purpose? To what end? Yeah. And even arguably sacrifice is itself a, a normal practice, like having a barbecue that becomes strategically deployed Absolutely. in a certain it, context. It is a barbecue. And I, I, I don't know if you remember in the book, I talk about getting them to see the, uh, the animal sacrifice on Mount Gerizim yeah. for, for Passover uh, in 2013. And, and I had this epiphany, oh, this is a barbecue. It's a public barbecue. Right. Yeah. Uh, you just start with live animals instead of prepackaged meat. 
Yeah, I went to that as well when I was there. Oh. So I was, it was cool to see that that reference. And uh, did you have a similar feeling? I well, I the the feeling I had was, wow, this takes a really long time. <laughs> like I, I always knew that sacrifice was time consuming, and I even taught that way. But but then seeing it in practice, I was like, wow, you know, because I was there as a spectator, and. Uh, there are only a few moments that are really spectator worthy. Otherwise, it's like a lot of preparation. It's also extremely bloody. You know, these guys, and they wear white white sort of outfits to accentuate that, I think. Um, but but yeah, you're right. It's, it is a barbecue, and, 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 that's, and priests would often eat while they did that. Uh, on, on the definition of ritual, I also liked, you, you drew attention to Catherine Bell's definition, which I forget the whole definition, but it, she talks about the fact that it's action that cause that calls attention to the action itself as set apart so there's a there's a like deliberate calling attention to the fact that you're doing what you're doing which you don't necessarily do in your daily life and, and the reverse too she doesn't discuss this as much that's that was such a key book for me uh ritual theory ritual practice but um Something like baptism too, which is a one-off, right? You only do it once, and in some traditions, you you don't even remember it because you were an infant. Um, and so I think it, it works the other way too. You can you can also think a, uh, you know, you can think of communion as how this is not like all of my other meals this week. So it's strategically different. You could also be in the shower and say how this is not like my baptism, right? right. Um, so, but that yeah. that key idea of difference for strategic employment is. Uh, was very helpful in helping me think about what's going on. Yeah, so you've already alluded to uh, Michael Polanyi, and we've talked about Catherine Bell, but I just, I just thought it would be helpful in setting the scene for your book to talk about the impact of these thinkers on you. Um, so when I, when I read your book, the, the, um, the book that you just wrote, Knowledge by Ritual, and your book, Biblical Knowing, uh, so I saw a lot of references to Polanyi and Catherine Bell, and also um, Jonathan Clawans and Mary Douglas. So I'm just wondering if you could talk, first of all, about Michael Polanyi and his impact on you. What were, what were his major contributions? Uh, because, of course, he's in the field of epistemology, and then Catherine Bell in ritual studies. What were, what were his contributions for you? Um, I think for Michael Polanyi, well, he honestly, it blew my mind when I first read him, uh, because I, uh, like many scientists, I have many friends who are working scientists now, hard science, you know, in STEM. And uh, I, like everybody else, brought a 1950s modernist view of science to everything that I thought, too. Science is collecting facts objectively and as clinically as they possibly can, uh, and basically throwing those facts in a pile. And uh, from that larger and growing uh, progressively better, more accurate collection of facts. We can rummage through them and theorize and check out more facts and then begin putting all those, fa- you know, I think of almost like facts as boxes that you're throwing in the pile and then put them in some kind of logical relationships to determine the true nature of whatever the construct is that we're studying. And Michael Plani said, uh, I mean, if I can just say it crassly, uh, no, uh, scientists is just a group of people who are biased and traditioned and skilled in a very particular secret society uh, over time. Um, and because they trust each other, uh, scientists can then know things. And if, 
you know, he has this very uh, famous section. Uh, well, I don't know if it's famous. I quote it all the time. Um, you know, <laughs> must no, be famous then. Yeah, what is famous, now? It's famous to me uh, that uh, you know, no one scientist can know even a fraction of what what the field they're even studying is. For the rest, they have to rely upon, un, you know, uncritically at times, have to rely upon the testimony of other scientists to see whether something's true. So. Scientific knowledge can never be found by an individual scientist. It's only when she writes up the ritual that she performs, I'll, I'll swing in the ritual stuff here, you know, writes up the ritual experimentation that she performs and hands it off to other people. And they say, okay, this seems legit. Uh, we trust this. And then they take it and they repeat the rituals in their own labs where they're at. At some point there, the convergence, the testimony between these people it's uh, the, you know, the way I like to say it is they're basically asking a very fancy version of the question, do you see what I see? This is, this is what I saw in my lab. Do you see that in Switzerland? Do you see that in South Africa? Um, and once it enters the community and it goes through that kind of layer of attestation, then we can start calling it scientific knowledge. Uh, up to that point, you know, it's, it's in the realm of scientific inquiry, but it's not something we consider legitimate scientific knowledge. And so... Michael Polanyi kind of shifts it into these are skilled people, not uh, not dispassionate, clinical object, uh, 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 clinically objective, uh, neutral observers. No, it's because they're they're skilled and biased in tradition. They can see things that we can't see, and that's vital to everything they're doing. And then they have to trust each other. So they have to be in a community where they have a particular language that they can trust. And by the way, I would like to mention Thomas Kuhn, who piggybacks off of Michael Polanyi about 10 years later, Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which is about four pages of Polanyi expanded. Um, Marjorie Green, as well, the uh, philosopher of biology, uh, does excellent work on this and kind of expands on uh, in detail on this traditioning and this ability of scientists to discern because of their particular habit formation. Um, and what Polanyi did, and I think this is the biggest thing, just to come back and actually answer your question directly, um, Polanyi, uh, Polanyi basically said that um, um, science is a personal art uh, and that, it, that it's actually people who are doing this uh, rather than a mechanical process. And I had brought the modernist, which the funny thing is I did an MA in philosophy later after my MDiv, and no philosopher believes that the modernist project is viable. They all look at it and scoff a bit, right? Uh, and then you go from your philosophy department in a big research university and walk over into your science department, and they all talk like they're still in 1950s modernism over there. Uh, and it, it, So for me, he, t he tore down that wall, uh, helped me to see what scientists actually do, not what they like to think that they do, but what they actually do. So what's an example of how that... The, those, um, I don't know if you could call them non-scientific or tr trusting processes work in the scientific field. Oh, okay. So I described this a bit in the book uh, at the end because, again, I participated in some research as an undergrad. Um, you know, things like um, scientists typically don't, depending on the type of research that's being done, but if you go into major research universities, uh, the, the scientist whose name is at the head of the article typically is not the one doing the direct observation of the phenomenon that's being studied, right? They have graduate students. They have, like me in my case, I was an undergraduate confederate in a social science study. Um, and there are layers of observation and analysis going on uh, that the scientist has to just rely on that these things were done correctly. Um, and so this idea that this is kind of all direct observation, 
The scientist is, you know, dispassionately standing there just making notes on a clipboard um, and, and not emotionally or in any way engaging uh, the, the subject being studied. Um, when, you get a, when you get in the ground and see how these things are actually done, it's a lot of people working together and mutually trust, trusting each other. There's a great experiment or uh, study that I cite in the book um, of a, a high-powered uh, laser lab. Uh, I think it's at Los Alamos, possibly. I don't remember exactly where it was. But they were the, these are anthropologists studying scientists who work on high-powered lasers. And the, 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 the study begins with a sentence, something like, you know, the greatest skill a scientist can have uh, in, the, in his or her research is to not kill themselves with their equipment, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so uh, when, you, when you look at something like that, you, you realize that actually it's something where it's so ex- extreme, they, they actually have to very intimately trust each other just to make the, the research work at the local level. And then once they've done that, they have to ask their colleagues in other parts of the world or other parts of the United States or other parts of Europe, um, you know, hey, we saw this over here. We really did this. Uh, we're, what we're describing to you is what we actually did. We're not trying to pull a fast one. Uh, does this seem legitimate to you? Hold me accountable, right? And uh, will you try it over there? Mm-hmm. There, there is no f- philosophical tenet that says... Um, I should say, in any kind of deductively logical way, you know, if you think of Karl Popper's view of science, uh, there is no logical tenet that says, um, I must trust you, sometimes uncritically, without having really good reasons, other than that you are a person in my guild, uh, in order for the the next steps of us understanding this together to work. Yeah, so it's so it's extrinsic to the scientific method, but it's it's necessary for scientific inquiry to actually happen. It's the secret sauce, and this yeah. is what this is what Polanyi points in uh, points us to is a the traditioning and the biasing and the the the, the skill that is developed in individual scientists themselves as they're training to become science uh, scientists, and then uh, which also requires submission to authority and trust. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. you can't learn to be a scientist unless you un- like. Why do you go? You know, I use X-rays constantly as a great example here. If you want to learn how to read x-rays, you have to go to a radiologist, right, or a medical school where there's a radiology class, and and by what assessment can you determine whether that radiologist is full of junk or whether they're teaching you how to read x-rays? You can't. You just you submit to the accreditation of the institution and of the individual, un, you know, not not knowing for yourself, right? Um but that uh, you have good reasons to believe that this is going to lead to you understanding uh, how to read x-rays as well. And so that trust is inherent all the way through. It's shot through the whole system. Yeah, and so then if Polanyi was able to show that that's the way that it happens in the, in the field of science, then he can extend it to say, well, this, this is how knowing happens more generally. Right. So we, we, could, we, could, we could talk about like infants and... The only way you can come to know anything as an infant is trust. Yeah. You trust, oh, yeah, trust, trust your, your mother, your parents. And, and by that trust thing, you come to know things in the world. You, you, can't, you can't test things for yourself. It's actually impossible at that point. <laughs> yeah, and I, it's, I'm glad you went to children because, uh, you know, this is one of the things, um, although there are good people working on this problem too, but when I studied analytic philosophy, I, I, you know, I was a pastor at the time as well, full time, and um, that was my regular job. You've lived a few lives. I have. Uh, I'm old too. The uh, 
But, uh, you know, I'm dealing with all the things that pastors deal with, uh, deaths and marriages and people's really hard struggles that they're dealing with. And then, you know, you kind of come in and we talk abstractly about, you know, these seminars about the nature of persons, how they can know things. And I, I at some point, I, I, I broke psychologically and I just said, look, if you can't deal with how children come to know, if, if everything we're talking about is just how rational adults and what we're really saying is white males is essentially what they're often talking about, um, then I'm not sure it's an actually, if it's a, a decent theory of knowing. Uh, and Polanyi actually can account very easily for how children come to know. I use this whenever I teach, you know, how do you teach somebody a color? Uh, you, you have to point a lot and say, do you see what I see? Do you see the redness, right? And if you've taught, you know, I've got four kids and so... Uh, I remember very clearly teaching the first two uh, colors and how frustrating it is. And then math. How fr- and here's the beauty of what I would say God's, in his infinite wisdom, all of that really hard like spade work that goes into teaching children the basic structures of life and you know, kind of discerning differences between really basic things like colors and temperatures and those kind of and basic mathematics all happens before we remember anything right that this was all taught to us and we don't remember it happening for us and so by the time we if i can excuse the phrase but by the time we come into kind of memorable consciousness um we think that we've just it's obvious to us what red is right and things that are red and things aren't red and then our parents are going, well, no, actually, we spent hours going over discerning things that are red from things that are not red. Yeah, I love, I love asking my kids, uh, how, did, how did you know this? And, and they'll say something like, I just knew. I just so they, 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 think, they think they've known it their whole life. It's just hardwired into them. But I, I've got another yeah, little book um, called Scriptures Knowing, which is a summary of biblical knowing. I have a whole chapter that is just this, the myth of just knowing. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a dis, it's dishonoring to our parents to say, I just knew and our teachers too. You've also brought up then the, the fact that not only is, is knowing a process that comes about through trust and, and you have bias and you have the need for submitting to authority and so on, but there's also a, a ritualized dimension to, to knowing. So I, I guess the, the test for that is, is precisely what you just talked about when, if you think that the the idea that the sky is blue is something that doesn't require a ritual form of knowing then you've forgotten the process by which you came to know that it, it dishonors history and pro- i shouldn't say dishonors that sounds extreme but um it discredits what actually happened and again this goes back to polani he said this is polani's uh part of his problem which was partly born out of kind of like michael buber existential crises from out of coming out of world war ii world war one and world war ii um, he said, look, this is what scientists are saying they're doing, but I'm in the lab, I'm a chemist, uh, and that's not what they're doing. So it's important to know that Polanyi was a, I mean, uh, he was a serious chemist. I mean, he worked with Albert Einstein and others uh, before he became uh, kind of flipped over into social science and philosophy. Um, so he, he's, he knows of what he speaks. Um, yeah. And it was because he was disturbed by the narrative, narrative that scientists were telling themselves that he didn't seem, he didn't think that jived with what they were actually doing. That's what kind of motivated some of this writing. Yeah. Th- this reminds me too of how I, I talk to my students about how they know scripture. So a lot of a lot of the students that I teach take pride in the idea that the, the way that they think about God in the world is biblical. And 
but how how is it that we as individuals come to know what the Bible says? And and that's a, that's a, a process that is highly mediated, and no one of us can walk around. Well, there are probably a few people who can, but in, by and large, we can't walk around with the whole Bible in our heads, let alone understand it. it. It's it's too big and too complex, and so it requires a community that you trust to mediate all these different parts of Scripture to you, and and we mediate. You know, we have we all have our specialties. Like you're probably always talking about Genesis two and three, and or Genesis one to eleven with other people, and kind of mediating that to other people, and they have to trust you, and and then you trust others with expertise in different areas. So, so no 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 one of us can be biblical on our own. Um, that requires a, a a similar community of trust that mediates. Yeah, and I think that ties directly into the ritual practices of Israel. I, I, towards the end of the book, I address this issue of disparate participation, um, that you need a polyphonic witness to the rituals themselves. Uh, the, the wife's uh, participation in the, the rituals, the children's, the high priest, the priest, the, the fathers, um, that, that as it is the case in science, that doesn't diminish what they know, that actually strengthens what they know, uh, the, pluralistic, uh, the pluralistic and disparate views of what's happening. So, so we've probed into your books your book at various points here, but I'd like to just step back for a moment uh, so we don't miss this. Um, could you talk about the, your book's central argument and primary aim? What's the big idea in your book? Um, let's see if I can remember. It's uh, the the main goal is basically. Well, let me let me say the who what what I'm trying to push the destruct button on um, is that you can figure out what sacraments are all about by merely figuring out what they are, what the things are in and of themselves. And so uh, there's two problems here. One, um, which again, I think these conversations all have their place, but I want to, this is why I say this is a prolegomena. I think you have to do this first and then you can do the, okay, is the wine, is, is the bread actually the body of Christ or, or not? That's a, I think that's a perfectly reasonable conversation. The first question I want to ask is, what is that ritual meant to do to us as individuals and then as the, the community of Christ? Um, and think really seriously about that and then come back to those other questions. Um, so that's part of it, is that the, the you know, um, we've often seen the, the sacraments, and of course we kind of go straight to the Lord's Supper as a big one, or baptism. I'd probably like to expand it a little bit more beyond those. Uh, and we say, okay, water, water is code. It's all symbolic. So therefore water is code language for cleansing or for initiation or what, you know, like a mikvah bath or, uh, and then you, um, treat it like a, I think my best example here is we kind of treat it like a parable where a parable for the most part is encoded. You know, it's like, you got to figure out what A, B and C stand for in the parable and then you realize that that stands for something else in the in the non-parabolic world, in the regular world, and you kind of map it over, and you and then you map the relationships, and we think of uh, sacraments and rituals that way too. Uh, the blood of the goat stands for this. The you know laying on the hand on the head stands for this, and we just need to figure out what those things are symbolically encoded for, and then by decoding them and putting them back in a relationship, we can then understand what the the ritual is for. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, throw away the ritual then because you've decoded it, right? Right. And this is a huge, this is, yeah, that's a, a huge problem is um, this makes it much easier to then fool yourself into thinking I can do the mental work without the physical work. 
<clears throat> which um, in Jewish and Christian tradition uh, has been a, uh, a move that has happened, I think, too often. So, um, so what I'm trying to get us uh, to do is to understand what I think, I think we all actually understand this, but maybe refocus our attention, um, that the practice of the ritual, like the practice of learning how to read an x-ray or how to understand an abstract concept of uh, laser, the physics of laser light, um, it requires embodied practices. Somebody has to script those practices for us. So it's important that we trust or have good reasons to trust that person who is prescribing that practice to us. And that when we, when we have good reasons to trust somebody and they prescribe a practice that they know works, doing that practice in our bodies should dispose us to see what they're trying to show us. Um, and I think what's important for that thesis is that if you don't do the practice, you will never, ever, ever see the thing they're trying to show you. You're logically separated from it. Um, and so, you know, it's like if you want to learn how to read x-rays and you just refuse to look at x-rays, right? Or you refuse to look at them in the way that the person who's coaching you is trying to, to do it, uh, then you're just not going to, you're not going to see what they're trying to show you. Or maybe only by accident are you going to see it. Yeah, or if you ask them, I don't want to look at x-rays, I just want you to break it down into five steps, write them out, and then I'll follow those steps when I have to look at an x-ray. Uh, those, yeah, those are the painful words I hear from students and parishioners all the time. <laughs> yes, don't, 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 make me, uh, like, don't make me get into the head of, of the, the biblical authors, just tell me what I'm supposed to do, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so... Um, and so by trying, to decon by, by trying to deconstruct rituals to, in order to understand them, I think we miss the point of the ritual, which is it's meant to be embodied in order to see. Uh, and you, so you can't do it from the outside. So this also, if you think about world religions, this means that I am actually not going to be able to understand some Brahministic uh, uh, rituals because I'm unwilling to participate in them. And I just have to say, like, at the end of the day, I can understand some of the structures that seem similar to some things I understand over here. I can maybe project uh, myself into the role of the participant, but I'm actually just going to have to sit that one out and not fully see what they see. Yeah. So where does that leave us then when, as, as you pointed out, you quoted from Jonathan Z. Smith in your book where he talks about the fact that 99% of the rituals in the Bible we can't perform because there's not enough information or we don't have a temple anymore or tabernacle or whatever it is. So if if those rituals were designed to produce a certain kind of knowing, but those rituals are no longer accessible to us, are we able to know what the biblical authors want us to know? Or where does that leave us as readers? Man, you're, you're cutting straight to the, uh, the arteries here. Uh, so... Yeah, um, so this is my theologian hat on now. Uh, I would say, um, A, no, I can't actually know what an ancient Israelite can know. I can't know what Jesus or Paul knew who went into the temple and practiced these rituals. Uh, I can't see the world that way. However, I, I try to, I, I'm at pains in the book to point out that the, the New Testament doesn't throw away these rituals. It ritualizes the rituals, right? So if a, if a you know, if a um, animal sacrifice is a ritualized barbecue, you know, it's taking a barbecue and using it for a strategic reason, um, then Lord, the Lord's Supper is a ritualized ritual of an animal sacrifice, where Jesus is now the sacrifice in that case. Um, so, you know, 
I'm sure you've had this experience when you teach about baptism in the New Testament and you just ask the question to students, where did baptism come from? Uh, and most of them think it's, it's a brand new thing invented in the New Testament. They say, well, no, actually there's a story in Leviticus we need to, you know, a couple stories in Leviticus. Uh, this begins there and, and then it moves forward. We have some other stories where people are baptized for very strategic effect. Um, and then, you know, you have this uh, Hellenistic Judaism practice of mikvah baptism. Then you have John's baptism, which is not the same as Jesus' baptism, which is not the same as the apostles' baptism, which is not the same as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so now we can start asking questions like, which baptism and for what purpose? Yeah, so there's a sort of genealogy or lineage that connects us to those practices. And, and that, that the memory that that practice was supposed to carry along is transmitted to us as practitioners. Right. Is that, so, is that a fair way of saying it? Yeah, and I think in that way, I can say, well, okay, I, I was, I was uh, a little bit not teasing out what I should have uh, earlier when I said we can't know what Paul would have known as a temple, uh, a Torah-following Jew in the temple. I actually think there is some way in which we do have access because those rituals have been ritualized for us uh, as Christians in, in the, you know, the early Jerusalemite Jesus movement, as I call it in the book. I think um, it's not lost on us that um, the Lord's Supper is a Passover or a Passover-like meal, or it, it picks up on that holiday at, at least. Uh, so that when we take the Lord's Supper, um, and it's now sabotaged, so now it's weekly rather than annually, um, we are participating in some way with our uh, Jewish and Hebrew ancestors uh, and the rituals in which they participated in. One of the things I've, I found really helpful in your book was the, the fact that you showed in numerous texts that a certain kind of knowing was the goal of the ritual. And I hadn't seen that until you, you showed in text after text. And I just wonder if you could take an example like Genesis 15, where Abraham is, is given the promise by God, and then he asks God, how can I know that this will come about? I forget his exact words, right, but something yeah. like that. So he has a he has a knowledge question. Could you walk through that yeah. response by God to show how ritual can produce a kind of knowing or know or, or a kind of knower? The the reason you hadn't seen it before is because you're not singularly obsessed with the topic. So uh, <laughs> now I'll see it everywhere, and, that, that's, and that's yeah. That's no mark against you. That's for sure. Um, yeah, so it's funny when I when I when I talk to Christian philosophers and say, "Well, I work on epistemology and scripture," and I, no lie, sometimes I would have people say, "And these are good Christian folk uh, who are, you know, they try to be biblically faithful," um, and they'll say, "What does the Bible have to say about epistemology?" And then I have to have that this awkward talk where I just begin in Genesis two, going, "Well." the very first story is predicated on who knows what and how. Hmm. Um, and there seems to be some structure to that. Um, and then as we keep on going through, it just keeps, you keep on running to this, does God care who knows what and how? And I think the answer is yes, 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 and yes. And so you hit something like Genesis 15 and the, um, you know, the juxtaposition of these two, um, these two uh, bits of trust, right? He says, you're going to have as many children as there are stars in the sky. And Abraham trusts him for some reason on that one, even though the very next passage, he, you know, um, he gets busy with Hagar. Uh, so we're not sure what he thinks this means in, in toto. But, um, 
But he trusts God and it's credited to him as righteous, uh, righteousness, whatever that means. And then the very next one, and I'm going to give you this land. And, uh, and he says, how shall I know that you're going to accomplish this or that you're going to do it? And the answer to that question is, bring me a bunch of animals, right? Which I you know, have to point out to students. Um, for us, that would not be an answer to any question. And so then they have this, you know, what some people think is this Hittite, uh, this treaty possibly or something resembling uh, a Hittite treaty going on. It doesn't matter what actually is going on in this, that text for, for my purposes. All I want people to notice is that, A, it is a covenant that God makes with them. And it is explicitly for the sake of making sure that he knows that he's going to have this land. Um, because he, he says, yada, tada, knowingly you shall know that, you know, your ancestors or your descendants will come and, uh, sojourn here and eventually come back into this land is the short of the long. So the question is posed, how shall I know? The answer is a ritual that is punctuated with knowingly you shall know. Uh, I think that's, uh, in this, these are the kind of places I tried to highlight where, you know, you can't just do a word study of yada or gnosko or edos or any of those. Because um, you'll end up with all kinds of funky results, you know, then you'll end up talking about Genesis 4 as the center of knowledge because there's three acts of knowledge in there. They just all happen to, happen to be sex, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't think the fact that yada is used to also relate sexual relations, I don't think those are two independent ideas. I think there's a reason why those, maybe why that's a nice metaphor uh, for sexual knowledge as well. However, I was trying to pick up on where the authors, the biblical authors, are unambiguously highlighting a problem of knowledge and how it's resolved, by what process it comes to resolution. Um, and, I, and I, as I, you know, I tried to show in biblical knowing and now this book, there's no shortage of text where who knows what is a problem, and then the question is, and how will they know it, right? Or how will they be disabused of some incorrect knowledge? And and also the Sukkot ritual. I mean, you gave lots of examples. I thought that one was helpful too, where where the people uh, come to know, um, what is it? They come to know that Yahweh is their God through, and, who brought them out of Egypt, right? Yeah, even more than that, it's uh, that's, that's a great example. Sorry, you're, you're having to prompt me more than you probably want to. Um, Leviticus, what is that, 23, 43, I believe, is uh, you shall dwell in these tents or these booths uh, for seven days, I think, so that your generations will know uh, that I made you to dwell in booths when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Mm, right. And, uh, and, you know, it's one of those funny statements where... Um, it seems redundant, right? Yeah, gee, if I want my kids to know that we dwelled in booths, I just say, hey, mm-hmm. uh, hey, kids, uh, by the way, <laughs> when we came out of Egypt... We dwelled in booths, and that would be yeah. it, right? Yeah. And but it seems to be that there's something about the fact. Again, there's something to be seen here that can only be seen by the actual dwelling in a booth. Um, and apart from doing the ritual, you'll never see exactly what they're trying to show. Now, I don't know what that is because I've never secoded. Uh, even when we lived in Jerusalem, we we watched it happen, but we never did it. So, well, I mean, you still have opportunity for that. In in the in New York, I bet there are plenty of opportunities. I I, I do take students to eat in sukkahs at restaurants uh, okay. during Sukkot. So yes, yeah. I, I I thought of the example of so I used to do a lot of rock climbing, and one of the categories that we use a lot in rock climbing is muscle memory, and and that because if you're working on a particular boulder problem or a rock climbing route or something like that. That route gets in your head after you do it multiple times because your your body just remembers how you move on it, and so you can you can relive it. But not only that, by climbing 
multiple routes and and spending hundreds of hours and in the rock gym and on the real rock you're able to see lines in the rock that other people can't see and and it's and it's that ability to see that only comes by having the bodily experience in the muscle memory of being on rock that you can look at a rock and actually feel your yourself climbing it because you, you look at it you can imagine it and then so if you ever ever look at a rock climber before they climb a route in a competition, they're they've got their hands up, walking up the wall because they're they're living that experience and and they can see a way that someone else couldn't see, and so 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 even someone who studies rock climbing with with lots of books and and learns about the process, they could probably do a better job at finding a route, but they don't have that that bodily muscle memory. Yeah. Uh, I think so. This Polanyi would call this. This is exactly what you're trying to do with a scientist: is is bias them. And I mean, I'm using bias in the positive sense yeah. here. Tradition, skill, uh, give them skill and discernment, uh, and they'll be able to see things that other people won't see. And I mean, there's there's a couple tie-ins to what he's doing with science uh, there. But that kind of being able being able to project a path in this case, like I can see a way forward. He talks about it. He almost uses mystical terms. He f- flips out of an analytic mode and says. It's like stepping on the shore of another reality once you see it, right? Um, and, and once you have the skill. And I do make this discern, I do, this is kind of an advance on the previous project. I make this distinction between bear recognizing something. You know, the, the first time you can recognize something, I think, again, going back to color, okay, I can, I can see red and I can distinguish it from other colors now. Uh, versus uh, discernment, which is this kind of this finer granularity so, um, so that you can say, uh, maybe with redness, you can say all these different things that, uh, that, you know, we can talk about primary color red, and then we can talk about all these different shades of red, or I, I'm sure, um, there are people who can see those paths further or more clearly or more quickly, uh, depending on how well they're able to discern those things. Um, I'm a drummer, so I, same thing, you know, if you watch musicians who are kind of improvising, um, the, the, the funny thing about jazz is if you don't know music, I don't play jazz, but I know jazz is a great example. Um, if you know music, um, people say, wow, you know, they're just improvising, they're just making this up. And it's like, no, they're actually reciting what they've been practicing for hundreds of hours. Uh, they're just putting it together in new and creative ways. Uh, but it, but it's, it's all there because they practice every single one of those riffs. Yeah, yeah, and operating within the constraints of the tr- of a certain tradition as well. Of like, okay, now it's the drum solo, and now it's the and 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 there's a, a, a sort of pattern that you follow, and there's there's no one that stands up and says, now this is the rule for how you do a drum uh, a jazz set, but it's followed nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, liturgy. Um, what there are lots of other areas of your book that I'd love to co- cover, but I I I want to get to something that we do. Uh, in the podcast now, uh, we've done it for a few episodes. So I want to see if you're up for doing a speed round. Oh, I heard you do this on another one. I was afraid you're going to do it to me. Absolutely. I thought and no, you only do it to really good scholars, so I won't get this. No, what? Well, no, I mean you have you have thirty seconds to answer each one, so, okay. so it gives you plenty of time to be okay. nuanced. So are you up for it? Uh, no, but let's go. Okay, so this is my whole life. Uh, first question. We're going to start out light. Uh, in light of all your work on ritual, do you now burn incense in your office on a regular basis? <laughs> uh, I actually have uh, a legally allowable candle wax warmer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do, 
Do I see incense sticks behind no. you on this shelf? No. no. Okay, it's something else. Never mind. Looks like incense from here. All right, sorry, I'm eating into your time. Uh, what's the most significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years, in your opinion? That is the worst question <laughs> ever. I, Ian Proven, it, it, it allows you to qualify, you know, to add all sorts of qualifications. I, uh, no, I heard Ian Proven uh, rebuke you on this. I think he was right. Um, the best book. I, I have no idea. I'm looking around my office. <laughs> um, I mean, for me, okay, I'll qualify it down to uh, books that really helped justify what I thought was right in the first place, but also okay. blew, blew my mind a little bit. Uh, someone like uh, Michael Fishbane, John Hollander, and that, uh, that kind of interbiblical exegesis, but also Metalepsis as a literary device. That one for me was uh, huge. Um, a lot of, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, that's the second reference to Michael Fishbane's uh, interbiblical exegesis. Oh, uh, really? Uh, yeah, Mark Smith also um, mentioned that one as a very significant book. All right, since you've done lots of work on Genesis 2 and 3, to, to what does the tree of knowledge and good and evil refer? Oh, that's an easy one. Uh, I have a footnote that's, I think, a page or two long and a, and a book coming up where I surveyed all the, the literature on, um, on what they, so uh, I don't know. I don't think okay. the author is actually um, that concerned to develop it. I will say this. The only other reference of knowledge and reference to good and evil, Tovarah, uh, occurs in Deuteronomy 139, 139, I believe. Um, and it's in reference to children who have not yet disobeyed uh, Yahweh. Okay. So uh, it might mean something like they haven't, they haven't messed around with Yahweh yet. They've... Yes. So, so this is like pre, like, ado- so sort of like adolescent uh, yeah. stage. Right? My friend Jerry Unterman, he says, oh, that's easy. It's, it means they're not pubescent yet. And uh, yeah. that, that's, Well, there you go. Yeah, one take. I would just say uh, the reference in Deuteronomy 139, which is the only strong uh, connection linguistically to, to two, 2 and 3, it clearly means uh, the children who he is going to take up in the land of Canaan because they have not yet disobeyed God. Mm, okay. Uh, and then staying on the Garden of Eden theme, uh, have you ever led a group of students on a trip to find the Garden of Eden? And if so, are you at liberty to share the results? I have and no. I'm sorry. You can't share it? Okay. Yeah. What do you find most challenging as a reader of the Old Testament? Um, I, you know, I teach an intro to the Hebrew Scriptures every semester um, to young undergrads, and uh, I think... I think one of the things is just trying to figure out what uh, some of the authors are doing. I, I feel like sometimes I know, and then I realize I've just been presuming too much, and, and then I try to get back in their head, and then I realize that's fruitless uh, sometimes. Um, the other thing, too, is, um, you know, I'm a combat veteran, and the, some of the harem warfare stuff... Um, you know, that I, I'm now, and I know this is reader response on my part, but I'm now, you know, when I read Be Strong and Courageous going into Canaan, I can't help but read that as uh, it's not going to be fun to kill like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's not going to be, uh, and it's not going to be normative, uh, but you still have to do it. Mm-hmm. How do you respond when a student says, aren't you so glad that Jesus saved us from all that blood sacrifice and ritual? <laughs> Uh, I remind them that they are cannibalistically eating his flesh and drinking his blood every Sunday if they go to a mediocre church. 
Were Israel's prophets critical of ritual? So I'm thinking here of, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Yeah, no, they are critical of ritual. They're critical of incorrectly prepared ritual. Uh, so I, I, I do have some sections in the book where I try to very clearly show that the rhetoric of those prophets is not anti-ritual. It's uh, anti-ritual that um, is not in tandem with uh, the ethics of the Torah. So you can't beat your servant, uh, prostitute your daughters, uh, efficiently reap your fields all the way to the edges, and then bring your sacrifices in and pretend like everything's a-okay with God. Yeah, that should go without saying, but apparently... I feel like it should, but... (laughs) Why do you think Jesus' followers still went to the temple post-resurrection? Oh, that's a good one. Um, yeah, Acts I'm staying in the ritual domain here. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. I mean, I, I actually did not pick this up until I was researching this book. Acts 21, Paul is in the temple courts giving animal sacrifices when he's arrested and ultimately sent off to Rome. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I have some, like, Christian-y intuitions that, uh, that, that these are Jews. And, and I, I show in the book, too, that Mark, Luke, and Acts are all very pro-temple. If you look at every kind of reference to the temple, they're all positive. Um, and so the idea that they would just abandon it because Jesus was there would kind of violate their, the entirety of their Hebraic lives and their Jewishness at that point. Um, so it would seem very natural to uh, see that as the center of God's activity and, until, it's, until it's no longer there. And the last question... What's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? Um, so uh, I think the one that is latent in biblical studies is this kind of progressivism that, uh, and, and I pointed out Maimonides even, you know, is a principled supersessionist when it comes to rituals, right? Uh, that, uh, that, all of this stuff in the Hebrew Bible is all because, you know, these poor Cro-Magnons, they didn't understand sophisticated concepts. It's very much like that old Phil Hartman, unfrozen caveman lawyer skit from Saturday Night Live. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't understand these complicated concepts. And, I, you know, I, I'd like to give these, credit, these people credit as, very, uh, as having a very robust intellectual life, possibly even as robust as ours, maybe even more so. Um, and that they're, they're rational people looking for causal relationships in the universe. Uh, and just because they attribute causal relationships to Yahweh uh, doesn't make it irrational or merely blindly religious. Right. Well, well done on the speed round. And before we wrap this up, I just want to hear you talk briefly about how your work on ritualized knowledge leads you to reconsider rituals like the Eucharist or scripture reading. So some of the practical practical outworking of this. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad you pointed me there because I, I do think it is all practical. And um, I think it's important uh, for us all, especially the Christian community, to think about it, but anybody to think about it. I think where I landed on it, when I look at back to what I learned from this research, was um, that we are all listening to somebody's voice and doing what they're telling us to do. So rituals are being prescribed to us, whether those are the rituals of American education or American views of success, career pathism, um, whatever it is, right? Righteousness in the church, what that looks like. There there are these scripts that are being handed to us, and um, most of the time we're uncritically imbibing in them and we're performing them. Uh, and sometimes those scripts are deadly and they're caustic and they're actually, and they're dressed up, you know, wolves in sheep clothing. 
Um, and so I feel like when I walked away from this research project, the thing that was glaring in my face is that we, the church, specifically need to be very careful who we're listening to. Um, and then the second part to that is uh, we need to be very careful to put into practice uh, the things that are being, we're being told to do. So um, I try not to harp on this too much in the church or with my students, but I find myself re continually returning to um, the, hey, if we're not actively in our body as a community, as a social body, and in our individual bodies, if we're not actively praying, listening to the Word of God by reading or other, other means, uh, actively attending to people who are vulnerable and exploited, and making sure that we're in some way helping to relieve that, not that we're saving them, but we're actually actively concerned for them and doing something about it, then I'm not sure we can read scripture well. Um, that all of those are symbiotic, that, you know, that when we come to communion, we are also ethically preparing that sacrifice. Uh, just like the Israelite who has to consider how they treat the, the immigrant, how they treat their daughters, how they treat their, uh, their neighbors, uh, and that determines whether God is going to uh, smell their offering as a pleasing aroma or whether he's going to despise it and hate it, as Amos says, right? Um, and that that goes the same for when we arrive together with the people of God to uh, take the sacrifice, participate in the sacrifice of Jesus through communion, um, that we need to be doing these things. So uh, a, a great Hans Beyer, who's a Mark scholar, he's a former New Testament um, professor of mine, uh, a wonderful man in, in every aspect. I remember in class he used to say, you know, when students would want to get pedantic, like, well, what did the author mean by this? And, and they, they kind of hit that wall where you really just, you can't know what was meant in certain cases. He, he would just say, yeah, these are good questions. I'm glad you're concerned. You know, um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not as bothered by uh, what I don't understand here. I'm actually more bothered by what I understand clearly and I don't do. Um, and because, and because I don't do it, I don't understand this as clearly. Uh, and I think that that's always stuck with me as kind of the, the call. And I think it dovetails very nicely with what I'm seeing in Scripture and what it's trying to do with ritual. Well, Drew, that's a great place to uh, wrap this up. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with on script. I'm truly honored to be on here on this show. Well, thank you. You've been listening to On Script, conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study. Mm -hmm.